Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Everyone loves a good ghost story. They make the best horror movies. Think of the Amityville Horror or Poltergeist. A family and a place that should be their sanctuary, and they're suddenly terrorized. Things that go bump in the night, uneasy feelings of not being alone. And there's always that one person who notices the odd occurrences at first, but no one seems to believe them. And it always seems like in these tales that the dad is the last one to notice or believe what's happening. He's the voice of reason. So when he starts to accept that something isn't right, the story then gets even crazier. That's exactly what happens in the story I'm going to discuss today. As much as I love haunted houses or ghost stories, I don't really believe in ghosts. Now, when I was a kid, I believed in everything. I remember getting a book about ghosts from a scholastic book fair in grade school, and I absolutely devoured this book. But when it came time to go to bed at night, I was super freaked out. I couldn't even turn out my bedroom light to go to sleep. My grandmother came in to turn out the light and I yelled, please leave it on. She took the ghost book off of me, never to be seen again. And she probably put it away with the UFO books and the Valley Girl book that said bitchin' that were taken away from me before. When I first heard this story today, being a non-believer, I wondered what the hell was going on. 
It really had me guessing until the end. So it starts off with the Andrews family. After performing a seance, sisters Jessica and Annie begin to notice very odd things going on in their house. Lights going on and off, strange knocks, things being moved around, even eerie writing on the walls. So was their home truly haunted? And how is this a true crime story? Well, there's more to the story than meets the eye. And the story doesn't end with the Andrews family. Sadly, there's another family that suffers a cruel fate related to the tale. That part is very disturbing. I don't generally give disclaimers in this podcast. I figure if you're listening to a true crime podcast, you're used to unsettling facts. But I know I'm bothered by things that involve animals or children. And this one involves awful things happening to a pregnant mother and her kids. Now, I don't go into great detail, just a general telling of the events. But it did really bother and stick with me. And it might with you too, so just a heads up. This is the story of the Andrews haunting and Augustafan murders. Things start out in the town of Pepperell, Massachusetts. That's about 30 minutes outside of Boston. It's the fall of 1986, and the Andrews family is in mourning. Their beloved matriarch, Deborah, recently lost her battle with cancer. And Father Brian is left to raise his two teenage daughters alone. Now, in most accounts, I read that his name was Brian, but I was watching the show Your Worst Nightmare, and they told his name as Frank. Unfortunately, with this case, it was hard to find a lot of facts, and some of the accounts had varying details, so... I pieced this together as best as I could. After the death of Deborah, the Andrews family is devastated. Now, I understand what pressure this man must have felt being left to raise these two girls on his own. My son lost his dad a few years ago, and even though we had split custody, I was suddenly the only parent. And as far as I was concerned, I was the less qualified one. And the pressure of knowing that you're the sole parent is absolutely terrifying. And then you have to watch the ones you love the most suffer through losing their parent. And it's an extremely difficult time. And you wonder if you'll ever get through it, but you do. And to think, this man had two teenage daughters. So compound all the grief and stress with the normal dealing with teenagers. It had to be very hard on him. Brian worked as a bus driver, which often left the two girls alone in the house. The girls miss their mother very much, of course. And when you're a teenage girl, you kind of need your mother to provide that guidance and comfort that you can only get from a woman. I mean, let's face it, you can't really talk to your dad about boys or periods. Looking for that lost connection, they decided to conduct a seance to contact her spirit. As they set up in the basement, they felt a mixture of excitement and fear. Candles were lit, surrounded by pictures of their mom. It hadn't been that long since she passed away, so there was nothing to lose. The details of exactly what they did vary. Some say they used a Ouija board. Whatever it was they did or used, they got spooked. Maybe a candle blew out, or they heard a noise. Something made them feel like they had connected with something on the other side. The girls didn't tell their dad what they did, and they just tried to act like nothing happened. The family was trying to go on with their lives, and if you're a teenage girl, 
Of course, that involves boys. 15-year-old Annie had recently started up a flirtation with a boy named Danny LaPlante. And one night, he called her house. And that started the relationship. He said he'd gotten her number through a friend. Even though he went to another school, he'd seen her and thought she was pretty. Wanted to get to know her. Annie liked talking to him. Plus, he was the captain of the football team. Sure to be a catch. And since this was the 80s, she probably envisioned a guy like Tom Cruise or Matt Dillon. Life was starting to get better. Annie and Danny talked on the phone several times a day. And for a short time, she was able to focus on something other than her grief. The two planned a date to meet for the first time over some ice cream. Annie spent hours worrying about what to wear, much to the annoyance of her little sister. Speaking from experience, girls are absolutely boy crazy at this time in their lives, so I'm sure this date was a huge deal for her. When she finally met Danny, Annie was very let down. He wasn't anything like she imagined. In real life, he was awkward and not attractive at all. But to be polite, she endured the date. To pass time, she talked about the loss of her mother and how hard it was on her and her sister and her father. But Danny was weird. She couldn't even get a good conversation going with him. Annie found some excuse to cut the date short and made her way home. And when she got back home, she didn't even want to talk about it with her younger sister. Life settled into this new routine. Their father worked a lot of extra hours, making sure he could provide for them. The girls had each other, but it wasn't the same as before. They missed their mom. Not long after after trying to contact her, they wondered if they'd been successful. At night, they would hear strange knocks. Mom, is that you they called out? Sometimes they would hear a knock back, as if their mom was trying to communicate. One time when they returned home from school, they noticed all the furniture was moved around, and it hadn't been their father. Kind of makes you think of that scene from Poltergeist where the chairs stacked by themselves. But soon the sisters started to think this wasn't the spirit of their mother, but actually something sinister. Things started to go missing, and the bumps and knocks sounded more menacing. Their mother would never want to frighten them. Maybe they had actually unleashed something else with that seance. Then something would happen to confirm their fears. It was another night with just the two of them. Dad was at work, leaving them alone. So they put on a movie, settled down on the couch with some popcorn. And that's when they heard noises down in the basement, the sight of the seance. So grabbing a knife from the kitchen... Annie crept down the basement stairs, her sister close behind her. They were determined to find the source of the noise, even though they were afraid. And to their horror, when they looked at the basement wall, they found it was covered in writing, which looked like blood. It read, I'm in your room, come find me. Instead of going to the room, they ran out of the house to a neighbor's. The neighbor called their father at work, as well as the police. The terrified sisters stayed outside while their dad and the police searched the house. 
but things only got worse when they came from the house. Not only did they not find any ghost or intruder, the writing on the wall was found to be made with ketchup. Brian was absolutely sure his daughters had staged this whole thing for attention. He had to deal with the embarrassment of having the police call to his house, in addition to worrying about the state of his daughters' minds. But the girls protested their innocence, telling him that this, about the seance and how they unleashed some kind of evil. Now, being a parent, I know exactly what I would say in this situation. Stop making things up. There's no such thing as ghosts. I know you're hurting, but making things up isn't helping. I'm sure he told them he was doing the best that he could. He was overworked, and he was also grieving. Tensions were pretty high in the house. Supernatural things continued, but the sisters knew they couldn't tell their dad. Lights would flick on and off. Sometimes the doorbell would ring, and of course, no one was there. Everyone was on edge. And this next incident would bring things to a head. It was December of 1986, and once again the girls were home alone while their dad was at work. And again, they heard noises. And this time it was from upstairs. When they got up there, they saw on the bedroom wall, I'm back, come find me. So once again, running out of the house in fear, they called their dad at work. And angrily, he drove home. I mean, he was at his wit's end. When he got to the house, he stormed inside. But his anger was quickly overtaken by an eerie feeling. All the lights were out, but the TVs were all on, blaring. And as he went around turning them off, he too heard noises upstairs. He slowly crept up to the girl's bedroom, not quite believing his eyes. Brian saw a figure in the corner dressed in his dead wife's clothing, and slowly this figure turned. But it wasn't the ghost of his wife. It was actually a young man with makeup smeared across his face like war paint, and he was wielding a hatchet. Brian ran for his life, the intruder on his heels. Now some accounts say that he ran out and the family got to the neighbors where they called the police. When the cops came, they found the house empty. Other accounts have the family being held hostage by the intruder who tied them up saying he was going to kill them. And in this account, one of the daughters was able to get away notifying police. When police came, they didn't find anyone in the home, but they did find what had re really been going on. After moving some furniture, they discovered a secret crawl space. And in that crawl space, someone had been living. There were empty food wrappers, beer cans, and a sleeping bag. And they had all been there for some time. This was no haunting at all. It was something much scarier. So some accounts I read, they talked about roadblocks being set up to find this person. Others have the police discovering the culprit inside the crawl space. But all agree on the identity. It was Danny LaPlante the boy who'd been on the disastrous date with Annie. After the date, she tried to forget about it, but Danny could do anything but forget. He became obsessed, hiding and living in the crawl space of the Andrews home. From there, he was able to torment the girls with the noises and the mind games. What was Danny's story? 
when he was a teenager himself and did indeed go to another school. His parents were separated and he'd been living with his mother and her boyfriend. I'm not sure what their relationship was like with his parents or why no one seemed to notice he'd been living inside some other family's home. Since he was only 15, he was treated as a juvenile. Danny was sent to a youth detention center for months. And then afterwards, he was transferred to Iyer District Court for processing. And that was in October of 1987. Because of the age and the fact that really no major crime had been committed, his mom was able to post the $10,000 cash bond for his release. His next court date was scheduled for December. But before that court date, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Came, Danny would do something far worse than terrorize two teenagers. In the nearby town of Townsend, Andrew Gustafson, I cannot say this man's name, was in the mood for a celebration. An associate was giving him a stake in the ownership of a hotel in exchange for legal services. Andrew worked as legal counsel for a local businessman, so he was excited to get home to his wife and kids for a celebratory dinner. His wife Priscilla was a preschool teacher at Townsend Congregational, where they were both members, and they were parents to two beautiful children, a five-year-old Billy and seven-year-old Abby with another baby on the way. He'd been calling home to tell his wife the good news, but she wasn't picking up. When he got home, he thought it was odd because her car was in the driveway. But he just assumed she was busy with the kids and not able to get to the phone. But he was wrong. As he made his way upstairs to the bedroom, his worst nightmare was about to come true. His pregnant wife Priscilla lay on the bed, By her ashen-colored skin, he could tell that she was dead. He knew not to disturb the crime scene, and he left to call police. To be honest, he was too afraid of what he might find to go looking for his children. 
Police Chief Irving M. Marshall Jr. was a sergeant at the time and first on the scene. Examining Priscilla closer, he could see that she'd been shot point-blank in the head. A pillow was used to muffle the noise and was still lying there. There was also evidence that she'd been raped. Marshall was the one to find the children. Billy had been found upstairs in the bathroom tub, drowned. His older sister, Abby, was found on the first floor, and she was drowned in another bathtub, just like her brother. Andrew's wife had last been seen when she picked up Billy at the babysitter's. That was around 1 p.m. And Abigail was last seen when she was dropped off by the bus from school, where she attended second grade. And that was around 3.30 p.m. So the murders had to have occurred between 5.20 and 3.30 p.m. He couldn't think of any reason why anyone would want to hurt his family. And the only thing out of the ordinary that had occurred recently was a home break-in. It was about a month earlier. But nothing had been stolen, so the family didn't think much of it at the time. Now his whole family was gone. It's not quite clear how, but police zeroed in on Danny LaPlante as a suspect. Apparently his mother lived close to where they lived. And there are some reports that say there was a trail of footprints. It's also not really clear how he happened upon the family and what his exact motive for killing them was. I read two very different accounts of how he was apprehended. One said police just found him in the school library being tutored the day after Priscilla and the children's murders. He looked at the police and said, Hey, I'm not a bad guy. Another account said he was caught a few towns over from Townsend. He had broken into a woman's home, kidnapping her and taking her car. She escaped, then someone had called police after seeing his picture on the news and then seeing him out in public. He was supposedly found hiding in a dumpster. The article said he was found with a hair belonging to Abby on his sock. That was effectively linking him to the murders. In October of 1988, he went on trial at Middlesex Superior Court. He claimed to have suffered extreme psychological abuse at the hands of his father, as well as being sexually abused by a psychiatrist. Danny also struggled with dyslexia and hyperactivity disorder in school. And kids at North Middlesex High School didn't like him, calling him weird. There was a history of breaking into homes moving things around, and playing mind games like he did with the Andrews. There was definitely something not right with this boy. The fact that he might have been abused emotionally and sexually probably isn't a far stretch. Something had to have gone wrong in his life or in his head. During the trial, he showed no remorse, often smiling, and he was emotionless at his verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. The first assistant district attorney called him a danger to the public until the day he dies. He's evil. You can't cure evil. There is no program, no rehabilitation for that. In 2000, he was put into solitary confinement for his own safety. This is 
probably due to the fact that he brought quite a few lawsuits against the prison system, claiming his rights were violated. First, he sued for being denied access to the prison law library. He also claimed his rights were being restricted because adult porn sent to him was seized by prison officials. In 2002, he was actually awarded a small sum for being deprived of his rights. There was another lawsuit in 2013, and this time he claimed his religious rights were being violated. Oh, and I forgot to mention he was representing himself. He claims to have become a Wiccan, and the crux of the lawsuit is that he's been denied items that he says are vital to ceremonies and rituals. However, those in the Wicca community are calling bullshit on this, saying nothing is needed to be a Wiccan. LaPlante is upset and says he's denied essential oils, herbs, robes, and even carrot cake. The cake part is used at celebrations. He's provided juice and cake by the prison, but he says the cake is ordinary, which creates a somber energy, and it's always the same type of cake. In the lawsuit, he states, The defendants have refused to provide cake that excites the senses, which is an essential and necessary part of Mr. LaPlante's Wicca faith. I don't know, Danny, maybe you forfeited the right to exciting cake when you shot a pregnant woman and drowned her two children. He just sounds like a pompous jerk with no remorse. He even had the nerve to quote those who truly practice when they say, do what you will, but harm none. And then he had a chance to possibly walk free. In 2013, the Supreme Judicial Court removed life sentences without parole for crimes that involving juveniles. He was only 17 when he was convicted. Megan Kelly, a spokesperson for Middlesex District Attorney Marion T. Ryan, said, While the Commonwealth appreciates the role youth may play for persons who committed murders before they turned, it demonstrates that LaPlante's chronological age played no role in the murders. He was going to be eligible for parole after 15 years, and he asked that two of the sentences run together, making him eligible for parole soon. Luckily, the judge ruled against him, saying he would need to serve 45 years for these crimes, so that he would have to stay in prison for another 15 years. Sadly, Andrew passed away in 2014, so filling in for him was his second wife, Carol. She told of how those deaths of his wife and his children plagued him for his whole life. After the murders, he was a broken man, and he often thought about suicide. But he knew his wife would want him to go on. Silently, he grieved and put away all pictures of his lost wife and children. He met Carol Seaver at a Survivors of Homicide meeting at the Congregational Church he still attended. Carol had lost her husband to cancer, and faith was the only thing that kept Andrew going, until he met Carol. But this man didn't let his grief stop him. He left the law practice to represent children in juvenile court for about 12 years. He said, I felt if I could get kids on the right path, they wouldn't go on the same path LaPlante went on. So rather than let this event destroy him, 
He tried to make others' lives better. Carol said even on his deathbed, Andrew couldn't forgive Danny LaPlante. While appearing for him, she begged the court, do not let this man out. He should rot in prison. Carol cried with relief when he was denied his appeal. And hopefully this man will just rot in jail. He did express remorse, but I think it was only done so to gain an appeal. He said, words cannot fully capture what I have done. I murdered three innocent people. Because of me, a five-year-old boy will never turn six. There's a seven-year-old girl that will never turn eight. Because of me, a woman will never be able to give birth to her third child. I robbed an unborn child of its first breath. I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I may have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. I, for one, am not falling for any of that, because I think deep down, he's a remorseless cold killer, and a tiger just doesn't change its stripes. If you can so ruthlessly drown two little kids and rape and shoot a pregnant woman, there's no sorrow in your soul for what you've done. He's just a sick individual who should never be released. And he's right, he kept a baby from being born and two little kids from growing up. It's absolutely disgusting. Danny LaPlante is just an opportunist. He claims whatever suits him to try to make his life in prison more cushy. And hopefully it'll never work. That was the story of the Andrews haunting and the Gustafson murders. Like I said earlier, it really stuck with me. Murders of children are particularly very hard to cover. I think it's because kids just think the best about the world. I mean, they don't even know evil exists. When any life gets cut short, it's tragic. But when it's a child, it's even more so. And for Andrew to have lost so much that day, it's just so sad. He sounded like he was a really good man who got dealt an awful hand. It's a hard story to forget. It just had so many weird twists and turns. For a while, you really start to wonder what's going on in the Andrews house. I saw it on Your Worst Nightmare on the ID channel, and it was just blowing my mind. My son was watching it with me, and he hates ghost stories. So I think he was relieved to hear that there was a human being behind it all. He's just like I was at that age. Now I can walk into the basement without fear of ghosts or whatever. I think after you hear all the true terror in the world walking in the form of humans, there's no way you can fear anything like a ghost. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The podcast is now on Acast, but if you can't check it out there, it's also on a variety of other formats. Thank to everyone who contacts me on social media. There's a group on Facebook just for Red Rum Blonde, as well as a regular page. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Blonde Red Rum, and I'm also on Instagram. If you're looking for any new podcasts this week, check out one called Disgraceland. I heard the first one and I was hooked. The host, Jake, has this very perfect casual delivery, and the production is very top-notch. I said I could listen to this guy talk about paint drying. The podcast is of true crime rock and roll theme, which is really cool. 
And the first one is about Jerry Lee Lewis, and it had me riveted. Seriously believe the hype on this one. It's getting a lot of attention on social media for a very good reason. He's only on the second episode, and I can't wait for the next one. And I've also been binging old episodes of The Trail Went Cold and Trace Evidence that I might have missed in the past, and Case File. And that's it, in addition to all the new ones I seem to find each week. There's a new episode of Murderish that, that Jamie did, and she has a great interview with Tara from Dirty John. Definitely check that one out. And if you're feeling it, give me some love and a review. It helps the podcast get more notice. I've been thinking of starting possibly a Patreon to help with expenses, so let me know what you'd like to see as far as a Patreon perk. Thanks so much for listening and catch you all next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.